The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back to Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I am here with my co-host. Well, I'm not exactly here. You're, you're miles away. You're like the other side of the ocean. Tom Astor in Blighty. How are you, Tom? Hey, nice. Really well. I'm there in spirit. In spirits, yes. Well, you're always in spirits. You're sort of 90% proof is what I heard. Uh, why not? Well, I look like it. Well, I, I like the, the look you're going for today, Tom, with the sort of the DJ, the velvet dinner jacket, T-shirt, 100% cash. What does it say on that T-shirt? No, no, no. It's what I, cash only. What I wear at my weddings, cash only. Of course. I have all my barman wearing it behind the bar at my wedding venue. You look fantastic. And now I Thank know you. what Sid Vicious would look like if you ever hit your age. All right. What are you drinking, old boy? I'm drinking a, a white Russian. Okay. I thought it was a glass so of milk. Variation on the black Russian. It's a very, really simple drink. There's two ounces of vodka, one ounce of Kahlua, and a dash of double cream. But what you need to do with the double cream, whip it up a little bit before you put it in the, in the mix. And then on the rocks, uh, give it a little stir. This drink became famous in the 60s and just completely lost popularity over the next however many years, 30 years, until, of course, the dude in the Big Lebowski revitalized it and made it famous again. I've just had dinner because I'm later here in the UK, and it's a very good after dinner, sort of, it's a bit like pudding. It's basically like an adult milkshake. It is. Two ounces of cream, double cream in it. It's obviously incredibly good for you as well, like a little punch in the heart whilst you have your cocktail. Well, hopefully. It doesn't matter because I'm on a, I, feel, I feel like I'm on a winning streak tonight, which I think is quite a good lead into our guests and what we're going to be discussing. Huh? Before we even get there, let me tell you about my drink. What are you drinking? I, what are you drinking? A cherry blossom teeny, a little hint there again about our guest. And the cherry blossom teeny... It's actually it's rather delicious. I just tried it because I was carrying it upstairs from downstairs in my kitchen when I was making it. I was spilling it as I was coming up the stairs because it was so full. So I had a couple of cheeky little sips on the way up and very sweet, very delicate. And it really swaps out vodka gin for sake. So that's the big swap. And actually sake is not that different from vodka as far as alcohol content. It's only about 10% less proof than, than vodka. So it actually has quite a big hit to it. And I did one and a half ounces sake, half ounce Cointreau, and a half ounce of cherry juice. And I did a half of lime juice, fresh lime juice squeezed in there, and two dashes of orange bitters. So shaken, not stirred, and poured out in a, in a glass that I had chilled already in the freezer. So cheers, old boy. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Very complicated. It's really not that complicated. Sounds like you've had about three already, the way you're trying to describe the ingredient. Enough yeah. out of you, you cheeky little thing. I always find this rather amusing, mildly ironic that we're doing a cocktail show. The man who, um, yeah, well, we've been in some situations before, haven't we? Well, well, I've had to pick you up, scrape you off the ground. Is that what we're talking about? But that would never happen anymore. That would never happen these days. Listen, before we get on to other outrageous things, booze news. We got a little bit of booze news ahead of ourselves. And what I wanted to talk about with booze news is that I went to a bar this past week. I was invited to a bar to see a friend. You know, it's the first time I've been to a bar since quarantine. And as much as the world is still sort of in quarantine and we might go back into it, uh, it was a bit of a, a, an unusual affair to sort of step into a bar and, and how things have changed. First of all, I was already a little bit nervous just going to the bar. For whatever reasons, I was like, oh, bar, there's going to be people. but. So much has changed, and I think it is worthy of news because I, it was news to me. I had no idea what to expect. And for all of you out there who haven't been to a bar yet, I think there's a lot going to be changing in this situation, in this scene. And I'm talking, for example, no more stools at the bar, no more people sitting at the bar, um, at this particular bar. And apparently this is quite common across New York State. The, the actual, at the bar, they had a Perspex screen down separating you from the bartender, in case you were to spit on the bartender, I guess, in your excitement to get another drink, which I thought in itself was strange. Normally this bar, it's a local, has um, nuts and chips and things like that, snacks that you can actually just take for free. None of that, all of that's gone, no more sharing. Also, there was a queuing to get your drink, right? So it was a very orderly queue with sort of circles on the ground to keep you six feet apart. 
So the whole bar culture, the whole concept of what it means to go to a pub, a bar, and, and have a drink is completely different, completely radically different. And of course, when you're having your drink, your friend isn't saying, oh, may I have a sip and try your cocktail? You're like, oh, no, no, wait a second. You know, have you been tested? Are you negative? Are you positive? You know, there's simply none of that. So it's just a lot of difference. Also, this particular bar normally serves food and they have a menu. No menus either, right? So everything's now online. You've got to download the menu online, check it out in advance and order off an online menu. So again, just all these different levels. So there you go. It's not the most positive booze news I've ever had, but it's, it is news. The world is changing and I'm not sure where this will go and whether this will change and affect bar culture forever and what will remain and what will stay and what will change, what will get better. But that is the world we live in, Mr. Astor. And I'm not sure, have you got things like that happening in the UK as well? Well, I don't like to leave my house unless I'm going somewhere that's nicer than being at home with people who are kind of nicer than my own company for obviously for a short period of time. So I haven't bothered going out, so probably. I don't know, I don't really want to go to a pub I can't go into and have to sit outside and not spit at people. I like going in there and shouting, getting rowdy. And I don't know, I haven't bothered trying it yet. So let's just work on the assumption that, you know, a couple of, a month or two, they're going to figure out the vaccine and we're all going to be okay. As my friend, the dude said, I'll hold this up for you so you can see it. Oh yeah. He's drinking a white Russian and he doesn't care. So the big Lebowski. Fingers crossed. Fantastic. We have a wonderful guest on today, this week. Someone who I met a while ago and I have been trying to get on Shaken and Stirred ever since we first launched this podcast. So drum roll for our guest, please. Someone who I have been trying to get on Shaken and Stirred for a while now, but you know, this is a busy, busy, busy person who, you know, if, if he's not out there making blockbuster movies and, and he's writing TV shows and he's got latest books out, let me just lead in gently here because I met our guest tonight many moons ago, actually in Manila at a rather fancy dinner party. And at the time I wasn't 100% familiar <laughs> with his work. And I was quickly given several of his, well, one of his books, several of his books, two of his books at the time. Long story short, I'm talking to a guy who not just writes books, but New York Times best-selling books. And of course, his books have turned into movies. He's even interviewed me for one of his books, which is the biggest honor ever. I'm talking to the author, Kevin Kwan. Kevin, welcome to Shaken and Stirred. Hey, great to be here. So, so wonderful. Really an honor. Oh, come on. The, an honor. I love that. <laughs> it's so funny. How are you doing? What are you drinking, old boy? I'm drinking a Jot Tonic. So my friend, I don't know if you can see this. Oh, okay. Paolo, he invented a new process of coffee that creates this amazing ultra coffee. It's a, it's a pure organic extract. And you can do amazing things with it. So what I've done is I've made what's known as the Jot Tonic, which is very simply a splash of Jot some vodka, some tonic water, and some lemon. And it's, it's the most beautiful, simple, exquisite afternoon drink. Mellows you out, but it's a nice caffeine kick. And I am addicted to it. I usually have That's it minus the vodka, but today I thought, what the hell? We're celebrating here. So cheers. Cheers <laughs> to you. Cheers, 100%. No, that was quite hilarious. When you lifted up that large stirring glass... I actually thought that was your glass for a moment. I, I was like, because yeah. most, I, I don't think that you're probably the first guest ever to, to actually bring the actual stirring glass onto the stage and basically produce it in front <laughs> of the camera. I'm like, okay, either Kevin has become incredibly small or his glass is absolutely gigantic. But then of course I was mistaken. You are drinking a regular glass. Have you ever tried Muay You know, I have never tried Muay but I've watched a lot of people get drunk on it. How have you never tried it? I've tried, I've even had it. I mean, isn't it a thing? I mean, every time I've been there, I've been offered it, uh, at one function or another. I've even bought a bottle and brought it. I'm not even sure whether I was allowed to do or not. But what's the deal? Why is it, is Mutai such a big thing in China? You know, I, I don't get it either. You know, I'm, I'm really not a sort of hard alcohol person. I like mixed drinks. I like wines. Muay is just, it scares me. Just looking at it, it scares me. Looking at how people behave after drinking it scares me. So I've really kind of, <laughs> I've kind of stayed away. 
It's about a 70% percent Exactly. Pre-trick. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's lethal. It's like the Chinese absinthe. So, you know, my liver can't handle it. So I just stay away. <laughs> No, well, I don't think anyone is yeah. can. I mean, if you look at the people, like you said, who after they've yeah. had one or two, they're all over the place. But um, it's something to behold. But it's something that I also want to bring back. And I want to try and mix it up and see what all the excitement is. Talking about excitement. Now, you know, obviously, I, I, I led in with your books and everyone knows you from, uh, you know, from, from all of your books, Crazy Rich Asians. But you've just come out with a new book and it's already making wave. So I went to try and get a copy and they were sold out which you'll be very happy to know, which means (laughs) that you are already approaching that bestseller moment if you haven't already hit it uh, here in in New York, uh, which is very, very exciting. Your book, Sex and Vanity. Now, tell me a bit about Sex and Vanity. What was the inspiration for it? It's very different, I hear, from your previous trilogy, more of a summer blockbuster type of of book. But what led you to write a book like that? Precisely that. I, I really wanted to do something that was a breath of fresh air that was different and that allowed me to spread my wings in a different direction. You know, I, I wrote three books, three extremely dense, layered, complicated books about crazy rich Asians. And I wanted to do sort of the opposite. I wanted to do something light and breezy, set it in Capri, have it be romantic and sexy and fun. And I just had the idea, starting about 10 years ago, to take one of my favorite movies and stories in the whole world, Riverview, E.M. Forster and just sort of do my, my retelling, my homage to Forster and set it on a beautiful island called Capri. So that's what happened. Do you need permission to do things like that when you, when you take someone else's kind of concept or idea or is it not really like that? Is it more like he's it's been just dead, a He's been dead for quite a long time, Ian Forster. I'm sure the estate though, I'm just curious. I mean, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a general idea. The book was published in 1908, so it's out of copyright. And, you know, there's a grand tradition in you know, the literary world to pay homage to other authors. So, you know, Bridget Jones' diary is an homage to, to Pride and Prejudice in a way, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun tradition. And, and um, I didn't get permission. I don't know. Am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as, as readers will see, you know, I, I used his book really as the inspiration point. And then my book becomes very different. You know, my, my correct characters are, are very much original creations, the story completely changes. So, you know, we've used the idea and the notion of what he does in his book, which was, you know, two people swap rooms and that's their sort of meet cute, right? And it leads to, you know, repressed love and drama and tears and (laughs) eventually love. So I I did that. But by chapter two, my book just takes off in a whole different direction. When you first saw Room with a View, all I remember is falling completely head over heels in love with Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, she was the English Rose. She was, I, was she 18 years old at the point? You know, she was beautiful. I never recovered, I don't think, yeah. from that. But is her character somewhere in there? Do you have a character that other 18-year-olds reading a book today are going to fall in love with like, in the same way? I hope so. So, you know, in his book and in the movie, the character played by Hannah Bottom Carter is Lucy Honeychurch. And my character's name is Lucy Tang Churchill. And she's a biracial American. Her mother is American-born Chinese, and her father is sort of this very blue-blood wasp from a Mayflower New York establishment family. And that was my conceit, to sort of, you know, restage her in New York. And really, my challenge was, how do I tell her story? You know, Forster was very smart, I think, in the way that he created this character, because Lucy Honeychurch was kind of symbolic of the struggle between a modern woman in the Edwardian age 1908, but being pulled back by all the Victorian mores and the Victorian morality of the generation before her. My Lucy Tang Churchill is dealing with a whole other set of issues. You know, she's dealing with 2013. She's dealing with social media. She's dealing with being biracial. She's dealing with being sort of caught between two classes in a way, you know, not just two races, but two classes, because her mother comes from a very middle-class Chinese-American background, and her father comes from Park Avenue. So how did she reconcile all these differences and just sort of survive the complexities of her situation? That's what I wanted to do with this book. I know that sounds very heavy. It's also just a really fun summer romance beyond all that. Well, absolutely. But I mean, that's also <laughs> kind of what you do too, isn't it? I mean, even with Crazy Rich Asians, there are sort of certain elements of it which are perhaps a bit more of the dark sort of seduction and deceit and you know, cheating and all the rest of it. But at the same time, it's, it's also a lot of fun and a roller coaster and 
you know, you, you, they're going to have a chuckle and you're going to, it's going to be, it's, there's yeah. elements where it's almost sort of naughty and, you know, you, you feel like you're sort of peeping into a world where perhaps you think you know about it until the you know, way you describe it, the way you make people feel when they read it, that you're really taken there. And, you know, I was curious and I, I know that you interviewed me for your third book and, you know, you asked me a bunch of different questions and it was a lot of fun to go through that procedure with you. But is that how you create all your characters or are some of them just completely fictional out of your mind or are they from your childhood? Where do they all come from? You know, I always like to say I have absolutely no imagination whatsoever. Oh, that I don't believe. I'm not a creative person. <laughs> I really, since a very early age, I've been an observer. I've always been the fly on the wall, even when I was five years old and my parents would take me to, to these parties late at night. I'd be the only child at 1 a.m. watching the spouse swapping and the intrigue and just absorbing all that like a little kid. <laughs> that That's what it does, in, watching in, spouse swapping. In loose 70s Singapore, you know, which was a crazy time back then. But I've always been an observer. So my characters really are inspired by real people. I disguise them very well, or sometimes there are amalgams of several people in one character. And then sometimes I always like to throw in real people where I can in my books. So for, for you example, it was really fun. And you know, I'm very honored that you agreed to, to be part of my little uh, Rich People Problems and star as yourself. You know? So we, we could really go deep and really create your character. And I did the same in this book with um, my friend Cornelia Guest. You know, she's okay. a real, real person playing a fictional version of herself in my book. And to me, that's just pure fun. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's actually funny, though. You know, I, I got to play myself in a, the readaptation of, of Arthur, the movie. And really? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, with Russell Brandt and Helen Mirren. Absolutely. Um, Nick Nolte and what have you. And uh, it, it was actually quite weird because when people ask you to be you, just yourself, and you know, what would you say? What would you do? Here's the script, but then kind of ignore it because we interviewed you. Just be yourself. Sort of, and all of a sudden, you know, Russell Brandt is, he's ad-libbing as well. Jennifer Garner's getting quite upset because she actually likes a script and likes to <laughs> stick to the script. And when Russell would go off script, it would throw everyone else completely on their lines. And um, it's always very interesting how you have different types of actor. And then there was me, who's not trained at all, just trying to be like, do what I would normally do and control the situation. You know, you, you mentioned being an observer. There's a lot of very unusual characters in your book and outrageous characters. How do you get to observe those sorts of people? I mean, in, in one thing, watching them when you're a child as a kid, looking at your parents growing up, but now, you know, the, the sort of elaborate layers of all these people, how, how do you get to see that? I've had a very strange life, Nigel. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's most, mostly it. You know, I, I grew up in Singapore till I was 11. And then I was sort of pulled away from Singapore, my, my, you know, forcibly removed by, by my father. And, you know, he moved the whole family to, to Texas, of all places, you know. So I had 10 years in suburban Texas. And after that, I, you know, was trying to get out as soon as I could. And I, I moved to New York when I was 21. So I feel like I've had many distinct phases of my life where I've come into a lot of characters, put it this way, you know, in Singapore, in Houston, in New York. And, you know, New York, I, I lived there for, for 22 years. So, you know, I, I was one of these people that really, because of what I did, I was able to work for some amazing people and have amazing experiences. And, and through that, you know, would have these little sort of peepholes into all these different worlds from the downtown world of, of Interview Magazine. What was you know. Texas like? Texas was miserable at first, but I think there really was a method to my dad's madness. You know, he really felt that he wanted to rescue his kids from this, what he saw was an increasingly decadent world in Singapore. You know, this was the mid-80s, things were exploding, you know, and he didn't want us to become, you know, spoiled little shits, quite frankly. Um, you know, he grew up in Australia. He was sent away to boarding school when he was, like, I think, 13. Spent 10 years there, you know, worked in the outback, worked on a ranch every summer. Um, so he had, he had a very Western point of view. And I really felt like he, he wanted that life for us as well. And he could see that in Singapore, it was a goldfish bowl. And, you know, we, were, we would be pressurized in, in ways that he didn't think would be suitable for us. So I, I, he ultimately did us an amazing favor. 
you know, he took us out of by it. By taking you to Texas, then. By I mean, taking Texas us to Texas. Yeah, and, and forcing me to, to mow the lawn every week and, you know, take out the trash and learn how to be an average, normal American kid versus being this pampered child. You know, I, I had a nanny. There were maids everywhere, you know, in, in Singapore. I, like, I, I didn't know how to tie my own shoelaces, you know. When you say he took you out of Singapore to Texas to do I mean, so you're not talking about, right, your father's sitting there in Singapore and then, you know, for work, he has to move to Texas. The, the emphasis on your move was literally with the family in mind. Is that what it was? Absolutely. Um, he was, you know, he basically was semi-retired by the time we moved. You know, he was, he was already in his 50s, had had a whole career in Singapore. And he really, I think he never wanted to go back after Australia, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, he was forced to go back and be the dutiful son and, you know, fulfill his role and, and, and marry the right girl and produce, you know, children, preferably, preferably male, you know, and, and he did that. You. You know, I've, I've, you. I've, me and I have two other brothers. So, you know, he succeeded, but he, he didn't buy into that lifestyle. I mean, he really was the most unpretentious, cool guy. I mean, he just wanted Wait. to live in Texas and, and um, drive an SUV and watch 400 cable channels, you know, on his recliner. So between the ages of writing your first book and 21, what was your, what was your New York life like? So I did a, a lot of different things. Um, first, I went to art school. I went to Parsons School of Design, and I studied photography. I wanted to be a fashion photographer. Oh, God, look. Doesn't aren't everyone. Aren't you glad that you, that you didn't? Aren't you glad you didn't? Look at him. I mean, for God's sake, you would have ended oh, Just FYI, Kevin, you know that I'm a New York Times bestselling author as well. FYI. I do know that. I just Absolutely. thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> Well, you don't know this, but you're about to, but I almost worked on your book. I think it was The Fashion Equation. Was that what it was called? So no, so I did the first book was Beauty Equation. The Beauty so that, Equation. Ah, it's interesting. You almost worked on that book with me. That's amazing. Really? So were you working with Abrams then at the time? I was. So I, I had a creative consulting firm. So I was packaging books and I was sort of doing photo producing and, and photo curating. And I specialized in celebrity books. So I did so many books for Abrams. I did their, their Oprah Winfrey book. I worked on a book for Gore Vidal. And then I worked for all the other major publishers that did sort of coffee table books. And, you know, Deborah Aronson, the publishers, a dear, dear friend of mine. And she was going to rope me into working on your book. And you refused. Um, she had. Well, the that it would have destroyed your reputation. <laughs> Not at all. I think there was some conflict. I was, I was working, you know, there were too many projects and, and then... Then she wanted Nigel all to himself, I think, you know. And, and well, then there's that. that happens quite yeah. often. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so I, I had this, you know, I moved to New York, I went to art school, and very quickly I started interning. I interned at Interview Magazine and at Martha Stewart Living at the same time in the photo departments. And I got to see what a grind actual commercial photography was like since I was the one logging in and cutting up all the. <laughs> all you know the the Mamiya film and and stuff like that and and you know so I, I did all the grunt work for you know behind the scenes in photo departments and realized very quickly mm -hmm. I didn't want to do any of it. It you know, was going to age was, you really quickly. It was ruining my love of photography, so I I pivoted into fine art photography actually, but to make a living because there's no money in fine art photography, you know until you're about sixty five and become Andreas Gursky, I you know became a freelance creative director and got to have all these various adventures with, you know, amazing clients, writers, celebrities, designers, things like that. So I think that's where I got a lot of the fodder that actually made it into this book, Sex and Vanity, more than any other book, because this, this is the New York book. You have some biracial characters in the book, and there are undertones of racism in a way in the book. And of course, it's very current with everything that's happening with Black Lives Matters right now. And Certainly when I think about my own life and, um, you know, growing up biracial, I, I understand and I identify with some of these characters and, you know, it's, it's a lot. You know, what, what made you think of introducing those sort of racial uh, undertones into a book like this that is a sort of a summer blockbuster? I felt it would be an interesting way to look at very sort of meaningful issues out there. All my books, I think, in some way or another deal with race relations. And I've grown up, you know, I have so many biracial cousins. I have so many friends who are biracial growing up in Singapore and then even moving to the States. And it's, it struck me that very few people have sort of told that story before. 
have set a book and, and have a protagonist who is biracial. You know, it's a very specific, complicated mix of issues to be part of, I think. And, and, and I wanted to look, to look at that. that's because it's a, a new phenomenon? I mean, in many ways. So like for, obviously, for you know, most people who are biracial have only really been around for the past 50 years because there really weren't biracial children before then. I mean, I remember- I mean, there were laws. Up. There were laws right. in Singapore, in fact, that you, you couldn't, you know, biracial marriages were not allowed, I think. So it is a new phenomenon, but I think it's increasingly how the world's going to be. You know, people are intermarrying all over the world. And, you know, I, I can't remember what the actual statistic is. They, they say by 2080 or something, we're all going to be- Brown. Yeah, <laughs> we're all going to be, you know, blended races, basically. So I, I think we're heading in that direction. And I think it's fantastic, first of all. But I did see, you know, the interesting challenges that were faced by people I'd grown up with and people who are very close to my life. And I wanted to give voice to that. So it's, it's something I really wanted to treat seriously. But I also felt would be the perfect entry point into sort of exposing the subtle levels of racism that exist in American society. But I think also, you know, you also introduce the, the, the way people are, who are biracial, you know, and they grow up biracial. And for example, if you're Chinese American and you're half, if you want Irish, Russian, Irish, Russian or Irish, German or whatever it might be, English and Chinese, you know, which side do you identify with? So my, my wife is Chinese and the other half is Irish, Russian and German, just like I mentioned. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are times where People will say, oh, you know, where are you from? And the first thing she always says is, is Chinese. And then she leads in and she, she's very proud of her Chinese background. But I'm part, as I mentioned, Sri Lankan and English and Irish. And my sister, for example, had completely, you know, a sort of a identity crisis of her own and would often identify, you know, with, say, the Sri Lankan side much more than the white side even though she was actually very pale and very white looking, mm -hmm. right? So I, I came out darker. I have a brother who's even darker than me, but she came out very pale. So she wanted to be Sri Lankan. And then many of us who were sort of darker as kids were like, oh no, we're English first because it was easier or it, you felt less foreign. You know, your characters in the book, there's a character in the book who sort of almost identifies with being the white American more than they do the sort of the Chinese side and almost slightly embarrassed of their Chinese culture. Is that something you see a lot of? Well, you know, this is specific to that character. And I think what's interesting about being biracial is that the experiences are so individualized and so different, you know, as you said, between you, your sister, your other brother, you've had three completely different experiences. And that's something I saw that was so unique to being biracial. You know, I had cousins who fit in beautifully, who were sort of hero worshipped, you know, all through school and, and idolized and had a great time, immensely popular. I had the exact opposite reaction, you know, with some other cousins. And it was all dependent on how they were raised, who their parents were, where they moved, what was emphasized in their lives, and how they felt internally. So it's, it's such, to me, there was such an interesting complexity of experiences. Am I making any sense? Yeah. No, no absolutely. Yeah. And no, so in the case of, of this character, and I, I think you're talking about Lucy herself. Yeah. Right, yeah. You know, she presents more Chinese, but because of her life circumstances, because of what happened in her family, you know, and she- By presents, you mean she looks Chinese? She looks, she, looks, more. she looks slightly more Chinese than she does look Caucasian. And because of that, but also because of how she was raised and, and how her mother really tried to push her towards her father's family, she grows up very much negating the Chinese side of herself. And so naturally when she meets this strapping young Chinese boy from Hong Kong, she's, you know, just sort of like, go away, <laughs> you know, leave me alone. So that's, that's her, her experience. Her brother, you know, her brother who presents more white, however, has the classic sort of preppy New York upbringing and the world is his oyster. Right. It's certainly interesting how, say, with Chinese communities, when they come to America, my, my, my wife's story family story is quite extraordinary and how they arrived in you know, the turn of the century and really sought out places like, for example, her family went to Alabama and then oh, tried wow. to, and they were the, yeah. her grandfather was the first Chinese baby born in the state of Alabama, just to put some, you know, mm -hmm. something around that. And, you know, and you realize then, you know, they really tried to integrate very quickly. You know, the, the children weren't, weren't even taught to speak Chinese. 
You know, so you, you realize how, you know, versus perhaps other cultures where they stay in, their, in, in a little bubble, you know, oftentimes the Chinese which, and, and, you know, would spread around and do what they did best. So that Chrissy's uh, family, my wife's family, actually opened restaurants and they created a, a laundry business and they were known for that. And it was very interesting for them for, in their times growing up in the South, you know, where they had a black bathroom, a white bathroom, and then they had their own bathroom, right? So they didn't fit in either side. You know, and, and when they would go to the golf club, you know, they were they could they be a member or could they not be a member? And people didn't quite know who they were or what they were. So the, the cultural identities that you're talking that you're you know often that you're discussing in your books as well, like they are there's so many as you mentioned, so many different types and layers and levels of it, and how people relate to it. But you're right, it hasn't been discussed, and I think that is that's the thing that really struck me about this this book particularly. And I know that it may not be a main feature for you know for you in the book, but I, I someone who is biracial, was attracted to that storyline enormously. And I, I, f I remember coming to America for the very first time and realizing this was a place where you have a, a, a melting pot versus a salad bowl, if you like. Whereas in many other <laughs> countries, you know, you, the, the ingredients all stick, you know, they're all mixed up, but they're separate in their little communities. And, you know, I grew up in England where we had an Indian community and a Sri Lankan community, but white community, but there were very few biracial children. But I came to the US and you get these children that are absolutely a combination you know, and they're completely, you know, unique. But then how do they fit in to society? Is there a, a sort of a very affluent biracial community now that of that of that next generation that are doing things in the Hamptons and everything else that you express in the book? Is that is that an actual community? I think there is more of that in the Bay Area, actually, in California. I see a lot of, you know, sort of affluent biracial families that, yeah, on the East Coast, in the Hamptons, it's, it's few and farther between, I have to say. You know, when, when I started going to the Hamptons, this is back in the, you know, sort of the early 90s, spending the summers out there, you know, I would go with my friends to these, you know, very sort of waspy tennis clubs and yacht clubs. And I would be really, truly the only Asian, probably in a 40-mile radius. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you just didn't see them at all. I remember going to Fisher's yeah. Island, Fisher's Island off the oh, yeah. Island. And I remember going, we went there for one summer with my parent, my father took me and we took a house there and someone, you know, we were a member of some club. And only after, it's amazing. I mean, you're talking about, what are you talking about? I know, mid 80s, right? Mid to late 80s. And only later on did I find out, you know, someone was talking about this holiday that we had and they, and they would absolutely would not let any Jews, Asians, Blacks, whatever, they just simply, so for me, I didn't, I didn't particularly notice necessarily spending the summer there. But what I discovered later on, that this is kind of prejudice to actually, you know, we are not going to allow a certain type of person in here. And I come from a long line of liberals. So for me, it's never been an issue. And I'm always surprised if, and, and it still does happen, but, I, but I'm always surprised when someone goes, well, you know, that Jewish guy over there or something. And I'm like, you know, it's not something that you sit, like, go into a room and go, oh, look, there's this Asian person. Oh, look, there's sort of someone who looks a bit Indian. There's, but people still do it. So basically based on ignorance is any type of racism, right? It's based on fear of the unknown and like, and I'm surrounded by it out here in the Cotswolds, you know, locally, you, you know, you're talking about local people who have had a basic education and who, you know, they've ac access to television all the rest of it, but they will still literally turn around and say something that I deem so out fucking outrageously like, thick stupid you know about you know anything that's kind of anyone's character is sort of you know judged on the color of their skin or whatever is, is just absurd my hope is that by 2080 where you were discussing earlier on right where where the we're mixing them and the mix has got greater and the pool is getting greater right but there'll be what i have what i've always had my entire life which is when i go in a room i just go in a room by 2080 i hope that there won't be an issue at all the Black Lives Matter thing that's going on at the moment, I think, is serves this issue well in the sense that it, it keeps it in people's faces, which it needs to be. Kevin, you need to do a book in the Cotswolds, is all I can say. <laughs> I think your next, well, your next book is Asians in the Cotswolds. Well, my next book, you know, this is the first in a trilogy, and the next book's going to be set in London, so... <laughs> I'll be seeing you, Tom. You have to interview Tom. You have to interview Tom because so Tom's yeah. a little bit of a bit of history on Tom's family. Uh, his uh, great grandmother was Nancy Astor, the first British politician. Fantastic. I mean, she was it, such a pioneer. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And she did yeah. more for the suffragette movement and more for, for women's rights and, and children. You know, she didn't drink. She was in the temperance movement. She became a politician. It took a foreigner. It took a foreigner coming in, breaking into those circles. 100%. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm intrigued about book two now being set in the, in the UK. <laughs> We're all free for another interview, Kevin, if you, yeah. know, you need to have that. You know, I can be someone else. I could be a different character. I could play someone else. <laughs> um, Kevin, come and stay anyway, and you will, you'll introduce you to some interesting other characters if you, need, if you need a bit of you know, research material. There are a bunch of funky people you around know, here. I was planning to spend the whole summer in England to begin researching for book two. Of course, I couldn't do that. I'm locked up here you know, in L.A. But... Well, you've got to go and see Tom and stay in yes. his rather magnificent house in the Cotswolds and enjoy yeah. All of that. You're welcome. Twist my arm. I'd like to go back a little bit to Crazy Rich Asians and the movie and what that moment must have been like when all of a sudden one of your books makes it into becoming a a movie. And what what point did you realize, okay, this is going to be extra special? This was a little different. Obviously, you have an all Asian cast. That's extraordinarily tough to deal with as far as getting wrapping Hollywood's head around it. Um, and perhaps the public to sort of come out to a movie that's quite frankly, you know, since the Joy Luck Club, there hasn't been a big Asian movie. What was that moment like for you? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. And I think for me, it really hit home even before the movie came out. Even when we started filming, we filmed part of the movie in Malaysia. And um, I flew over to TKL, Kuala Lumpur, to sort of um, just visit the set and sort of inspire the director and all that. And I just remember sort of arriving, you know, fresh off the plane and then they took, they put me in a van and then took me straight to the set. And I was sort of bleary eyed and jet lagged driving up the hill. Um, we actually, the house that you see in Crazy Rich Asians, Tassel Park, is actually um, a palace in KL. It's on top of a hill. It was a sultan's palace and it had been abandoned and, and sort of derelict. And in two weeks, Hollywood sort of whipped it into shape. So what you see, you know, in the movie is a set that was created in two weeks out of an old sort of rotting house. But just driving up the hill, I began to see all these 18 wheelers, one after the other, you know, lining the hill up there. And there must've been about about 118 wheelers. And by the time we got even closer to the set, you would see, you know, the hundreds of people and the equipment and the lights and the extras. And I was like, oh wow, we're really making a movie. This is not a home movie. <laughs> this is not even being filmed on Red Cam. This is a Hollywood movie. So it, it, it sort of became real to me that something special was happening. Nice and you could cool. see it in the way John Chu choreographed, you know, the amazing party scene. The amount of cameras happening. There were food stylists doing the food and waiters moving in and out. It was a choreographed dance that was just so beautiful. There was a jazz band and then there were all the extras dressed up in ball gowns. And I was like, wow, I, I really got chills and said, this is going to be something special. And what's oh. your role like at that moment? When, do, you, do you help advise? Were you just there to, to witness the magic and they've just brought you on just to sort of fun for you to look at and see what's happening? Or are you actually there saying, well, actually, I wouldn't do it like that. Do you get it? Are you involved in any on that level? Or is that really, it's already been handed over to the director and it's up to him? I was very involved. I was, um, I was a producer on the film. So from day one, as we began developing it, I was part of this, the team to select a screenwriter. I worked with the screenwriter. Then we, we selected John. You know, we did a director search. I was involved in casting. So all along the way, I was sort of part of the sort of major decision making. But where I really, I think, contributed was just because of my sort of design background and just because I have this visual knowledge of this world, you know, I really, I think, was most useful when I began working with the set designers, with the, with the costume designers just to get the look right. So for months and months and months, I was, you know, I was in contact with them. I was on calls, on conference calls. I was sending them, I sent them thousands of pictures of, you know, interiors of of old pictures of my grandparents' house and things like that. So that's where I had the most fun, being able to sort of help creative direct the visual look of the film. What way are sort of, if you'd like, Asian rich people, you know, from American rich people or European rich people, the sort of the wealth that we, that one has in Asia. And I've, be, you know, been to China and sort of seen people who own entire buildings when they go in and they've locked down restaurants and they've had armed guards outside. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm here there with Mr. Lee who owns half mm-hmm. of Hong Kong. And, you know, it's these sort of strange, you know, sort of situations where I'm like, wow, this is wealth in a way that I've like never really seen it before. Or Manila too. I mean, the the crazy rich Filipinos. I mean, to be rich in the Philippines is to be like a god. 
Yeah, number one, I think there's there's a scale to which the wealthy are able to live in Asia that you just don't see, you know, even here in this country. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't live like the average billionaire in, in Asia, I have to say. But, you know, it's also interesting that there is old money and there is new money in Asia. And the old money crowd are nearly invisible. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who go out of their way to make sure you never know that they come from money. And then there's the people who turn up the bling full volume. And so that's a lot of quite that- similar then to sort of, I guess, is sort of a European or, or an English sort of wealth, as in you'll have the old money, the sort mm-hmm. of, if you want, the, other than the titles, the lords, the ladies, the earls, yeah. the dukes, you know, which gives it away, they'll often show up in an old Volvo with their Wellington boots on and, you know, and, and, and their sort of disheveled look. Meanwhile, the sort of nouveau riche will pull up in a brand new Mercedes Maybach or something and pop out and they're looking all polished. And is, is that the similar, is a bit of a similarity? Exactly, exactly. I mean, and it was interesting for me because I, I, you know, I grew up in Singapore from, and I came from, a, you know, an old established family and their tastes and attitudes of my, my relatives, my aunts, my cousins, my grandparents were so similar to the, to the waspy crowd on the East Coast you know, from to, to, to the parents of my friends that I would go spend the weekends with, you know, in the Hamptons. It was almost exactly the same, you know, the, the love of old rotting wicker, for example, <laughs> you know, and the old cars, you know, having the old cars, you know, were filled with dog hair and, and old towels and old beach towels and things like that, you know. It was very, all very familiar to me. And this disdain for showing off, you know, every, you know, they were proud of how old their hats were. They were proud of how old their cars were. And it's, it's very different, I think, than the new money. And that's something I really sort of have fun with in the new book, sort of, you know, poking fun. It's the sort of states of anxiety, isn't it? I mean, I've yeah. met, you know, I've got people around where I am now, plenty of money, billionaires, whatever, and they, and with chronic status anxiety. I mean, chronic, you know, they'll never be happy. It doesn't matter how much money you got, and it doesn't matter how many much bling you got, it doesn't matter how, what chopper you got, you have, like, you can never rest because you still basically know you're just insecure fundamentally. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. The thing about old money is that it's been around a long time. It's established. You kind of got into the swing of it. You kind of know who you are. You kind of got a bit of a background mm-hmm. to it. And, you know, there's not much to worry about. You've got nothing to prove. Precisely. And this is coming from somebody whose family basically moved from the US in order to give their family status by marrying into all the, the nobility yeah, in, the, yeah, yeah. in the UK, yeah, right? The yeah, Astors move over with all the money from fur and gold rush money. Well, in, in, I was saying in, in the 30s, in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, the House of Lords, which is, you know, one of our chambers, let's say, for the, for the American audience, the House of Lords, which was obviously 100% male in the, in the 30s, females hadn't been allowed in yet, um, Three quarters of them were married to American heiresses. I mean, of course, because they'd all run out of money. That was kind of the old Volvos you're talking about, the dog hairs, you know. But they're not doing it because it's out of choice. It's because you can't afford a freaking new Rolls Royce. But, you know, of course, you came over, and it's a bit like thinking that, that, that us lot are aristocrats. I'm a fourth-generation immigrant, you know. You know what I mean? We just came over and had lots of money and bought and bought the title, bought the titles, and then immediately, right? And actually, what's really funny, I find these days, is if you turn around to someone and say, "We're fourth generation," I'm a fourth generation immigrant. I'm not, which is true. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not an aristocrat. People really don't like it. People really don't like it. That's an interesting. By the way, that maybe for your, the book you're going to research over here, it's really funny. I mean, I, I, I find it highly amusing. You sit there and go, you know, we came over from the state. We haven't been here that long. Oh. And everyone refers to us as aristocrats. We bought the damn title. You know, what makes you an aristocrat? Come on, we're just like, you know. We have a lot to talk about, Tom. (laughs) We really do. I mean, that's what what fascinates me. You know, snobbery, status consciousness, status symbols, uh, you know, pretentious people. I find them endlessly fascinating because they're really a breed apart to me. You know, it's it's not how I was raised. So to, to see them in their full peacock mode is really fun. And it's really fun to poke at them. And I do that. I did my books, you know. That is the most fun. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because snobbery is contextual, right? No matter where you are, there's always going to be someone that's going to outsnob you. You know, my my grandfather was the commissioner of the St John's Ambulance Brigade in Singapore, and the patron of St John's Ambulance was Edwina Mountbatten, and so she was basically his boss. And and she would come to Singapore and visit, and come over for tea. And my grandmother refused to receive her. Ah. Talk about snobbery. On the grounds that my grandmother was a Chinese snob. And she's like, I don't care about this employee that you have to deal with. 
that's coming off the tee, leave me alone. That's you know. taking it to a whole new level. That's yeah. great. <laughs> because that's the Chinese snobbery of like, ugh, the white people. Right. You know, Amazing. don't that's have time not- for it. Absolutely, you know. 100%. So it's interesting how the, the coin gets flipped, depending on where you are. My grandmother yeah. was thrown out of her family in Sri Lanka, um, who were a ruling family in Sri Lanka, because she married a English sailor. And they were horrified that she would not marry someone Sri Lankan with a sort of, you know, of a certain class. The right pedigree. Exactly. Caste, yeah. right? We have a caste system in India and in Sri Lanka. And, you know, it was literally considered like way below her to marry this Englishman, which, you know, obviously when they moved to England, it was the whole tables were turned and it was, oh my God, you married a, a you know, Sri Lankan, an Asian, they clean our houses. They, they, work, they work as servants. You know, they, it was the complete flip. And my grandmother couldn't even get a job, even though she was far better educated than almost anyone she knew. She had, you know, a degree and she was very well read and educated woman, couldn't get a job, hardly yeah. get a job. If she did, it was very menial. You know? There was a class of Chinese, you know, like my grandmother, who felt that the British or any Westerner, they were barbarians. They weren't fit to be served. You're a barbarian, Asta. <laughs> Long line of barbarians. Do you know what I'm I'm watching now that I'm absolutely fascinated by? It's on Netflix. It's called Indian Matchmaking. Yes. Have you seen that show? It's quite scandalous. It's also very addictive, but it's it's so fun to see all these different families and their different value systems, I think, and how the very traditional Indians, you know, are still to this day, you know, there's a Poor kid, I was watching last night's episode. He's 25 years old and his mother said, okay, you have three candidates, choose one or I choose for you and you're getting married by December. The end. (laughs) You know, you're going to marry a suitable girl, the end, by December. When I met my my wife 25 years ago, I called my mother and I said, I've met this girl in Milan and I I want to, I think I'm going to marry, I want to marry her. You know, she said, but you just met her today. Does she know? And I'm like, no, no, she doesn't know. I just, she's just, I'm blown away by her. And this is the day I met my wife. And she said, well, tell me about it. I'm like, well, she's Chinese and she's from Alabama. <laughs> Can you imagine my mom's face, right? I, I was on the phone, but she, yeah. she literally jaw dropped. And she said, you can't marry a Chinese girl from Alabama. She was like, the two together was like the, she, and I'm like, and I said, mom, you are a Sri Lankan from England. I'm like, what on, why on earth can I not marry a, a Chinese? But the snobbery was right there. It was the same as my grandmother who used to use an insult to say to whether someone was a darker skinned Sri Lankan or lighter skinned Sri Lankan, they had snobbery within- Oh yeah, the, absolutely. The color of skin within the country. And then because, you add colonialism to that. And you know, because I, I know there's a subset of Sri Lankan society where they're more British than the British. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, the, and the Singaporeans were like that as well. You know, I, you know my, my grandfather was such an Anglophile, you know, that he, he smoked the pipe every night and, you know, had his brandy and... Well, quite frankly, you know, yeah. Kevin, your voice, you don't sound like you were brought up in Texas. Well, English. this... You basically lost your English accent. You've got an English <laughs> accent. And it's actually 21. Yeah. However many years you spent in America, it's had a little effect on it, but the English keeps coming through. Until, until the age of 21, did you have an English accent? I mean... A non-American that, I mean... Uh, well, this is the interesting thing. I'm one of these strange chameleons where it's, um, it's called code shifting. Depending on who I'm speaking to, my accent changes. So because you're British and he's pseudo-British, this is just how I speak to you. You know, if I'm talking to a Texan, the Texan's yeah. going to come out, you know? So, and I think that comes from being 11 years old. But, you know, in Singapore, I did, you know, I grew up speaking the Queen's English, yeah. right? And then I was like, pulled away, put into American high school, and I, I had to lose that accent by third period, really. You, yeah, know. you haven't lost it, it keeps coming yeah. out. I keep, yeah. <laughs> it keeps popping out. Only when I'm talking to you. But, Is you know, it? It, it, you know, when I'm in New York, I, I sound more like a New Yorker. When I'm in LA, I sound more like a surfer kid. It's very annoying. It's, I, I can't help it. I really can't. So, Everybody, this is Kevin yeah. Kwan. Thank you so much for coming on Shaken and Stirred and talking about your new book, Sex and Vanity. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. It's bound to become a bestseller all over the world. Before we leave, Kevin, can we do a little thing we like to call Last Orders? It's uh, rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Looking forward to it. Fantastic. <laughs> nice and easy. This shouldn't be too painful. Yeah. How would you describe yourself? Evolving. Mm. 
Nice. What are you reading? Right now I'm reading a book called The Last Kings of Shanghai, which is fascinating. It's all about the Sassoons and the Kajuris. So the two richest, most powerful families that sort of founded modern China were Iranian Jews. Wow. And this is, this is their story. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Kaduris today own the Peninsula Hotel Group of, along, along with, you know, half of Asia. And, and the Sassoons, um, they controlled the opium trade into China. Fascinating book. That is some absolutely yeah. longevity right there. We talk about yeah. old wealth, old money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you just mentioned there is something else. Heroes or villains, Kevin? Heroes. Sorry, I'm a romantic. <laughs> Although I really enjoy writing about villains. Uh, those, those are the, my favorite characters to you write. You can't have a hero without a villain. Yeah, I have fun writing the, the nasty characters. But I, I always root for the villains. I mean, for the... Oh, Freudian slip. I always root for the heroes. <laughs> or maybe I don't. <laughs> I know, really. I always, I always root for the villain myself. I always have. I don't know why. I always wish, wonder what would happen if the villains actually won. Yeah, Kevin, if you look at Nigel and me, hero or villain, which one's which? <laughs> villain, for sure. <laughs> I love that. We can't see where you're pointing. And you, yeah. <laughs> leave it like that. Thank God it's a exactly. In the movie of your life, Kevin, who would play you? Oh, wow. Nigel Barker, maybe? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I should be so lucky. How'd you become a fashion um, photographer? Yeah. Jimmy O. Yang. Okay. I mean, we always get mistaken for each other on the red carpet, even though he looks nothing like me, but he has longish hair and he wears round glasses. So, you know, we all look the same. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's what I say about all the English people. They all look yeah. the same. Finally, shaken or stirred? Shaken. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you do. You leave us all shaken. Kevin Kwan on Shaken and Stirred. Thank you so much. You are truly an, an amazing, inspirational character. I love the fact that you just take your life and you've, you've turned it into these sort of books because of all your research where you've come from, but they, it's so tangible. I think that's the thing for me. When I'm reading it, I'm taken right there. Sex and Vanity. I can't wait. Take care. Thanks so much. This has been really great fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good luck. Okay. Take care. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.